Hello and welcome to the Lakeshore Podcast. My name is Aaron Valing and today I have Cliff Martinez, the influential Cliff Martinez, uh, one of my favorite composers, so I'm thankful for this opportunity, I'll tell you that. Uh, he scored, obviously, Drive, which is one of the best films ever. Uh, he's also uh, scored Contagion and The Lincoln Lawyer, Solaris, Wicker Park, Pump Up the Volume, Sex Lies and Videotape, and most recently, he scored Hotel Artemis, which is uh, out now on Lakeshore Records uh, in digital uh, and CD format, and soon will be out on vinyl. Uh, uh, congratulations on your new score, uh, Hotel Artemis. It's, uh, it's extraordinary. It's one of your best in years. Um, thank you. As I've been listening to it, uh, I'm finding that it sounds like you've you've taken a pretty different approach to this score compared to uh, some of your previous work. It seems bigger or harder or heavier. And I'm curious, uh, is, is that something that's a function of the, the film? Is that something a function of how where you're at in terms of your compositional uh, trajectory? If you could kind of elaborate a bit on how you approach the score. Well, I think it's mostly influenced by the, the film and, and the director's input, probably more than anything. I always have certain things that I'm musically preoccupied with. When I was, um, I had just purchased some steel drums, baritone steel drums, uh, at the time that I was working on Solaris, and I was just determined to shoehorn those into the score one way or another. <laughs> so I often have a lot of things that I'm just interest me happened to interest me at the time that I'm scoring a given project. But for Artemis, I think it kind of, it feels like an action score to me, even though the uh, sequences of action are kind of few and far between. There was a deliberate attempt to to make everything kind of move along and, and be intense from the very opening of the film to the end. So I think the um, kind of unrelenting pounding nature of the score was, um, you know, that was something I usually don't do. And that was pretty much, uh, you know, Drew's director's influence, right? as well as the film itself just seemed to call for that kind of intensity and that kind of pacing. Right, right. And it's, it, it is, it's a bit more pounding and less subdued than, I would say uh, some of the other scores people, uh, at least as of late, would would know some of your scores, Drive and Neon Demon and Game Night and stuff like that. I think it's it seems like there's a bit. It's just a bit. Uh, there's a little bit of grit to it, but um, it also I've noticed that there's a set of sort of themes uh, that are on the score. And uh, is this something that comes from you working with Drew Pierce, the director, uh, in terms of you know how you're you're scoring for a character and that sort of thing yeah i'm generally theme sensitive i like to have theme and variation usually for characters Mm -hmm. but they always um that idea always goes out the window if you write a good theme it ends up getting cut up and moved around elsewhere in the film kind of um dilutes the effect of of using themes but drew is very um adamant about uh, good theme hygiene he would you know insist <laughs> the theme only play when the when that character is uh visible on screen right and um and he also you know suggested who gets a theme um so there was a bunch of them there was um jeff goldblum's character was uh 
called The Wolf King, and Drew had this idea about some kind of howling sound. So that's an electric violin. Um, and at one point, there's a, a pen in the film that plays a significant... Um, the pen is an important object in the film. Right. And Drew even wanted a theme for the pen. So most of the main characters got themes. I thought when I was listening to, I think it was a theme for, is it Nice? Is that the character? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought I heard uh, your signature instrument, the Crystal Bache. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, she's. Uh, I think she turned out to be, her character turned out to be, to me, musically, the, the, the focus of, of the score. So she had a few themes. Uh, I originally used my Old Faithful, the Bache Crystal, ah, yeah. which I try to wedge into every score where, where the director will, will allow me. Originally, I wrote something for the two brothers because I thought that was um, an important relationship. But the Crystal motif ended up kind of um, migrating over to um, the... I guess the romance between Waikiki and Nice. Right. So it became more about, I guess it became the love theme, I guess you would call it. Yeah, that makes sense. And the, the Bache has such a certain quality about it that I feel like it's a little bit, it's a softer kind of tone to it. But um, in, in it's, and it's an acoustic instrument. For those who don't know, if you could just tell us a little bit about it, it's actually an acoustic instrument that kind of sounds electronic, right? Yeah, I guess you would call it a uh, experimental instrument. It um, it kind of began in the fifties with two uh, brothers, okay. Bache, Francois and Bernard Bache. They're two brothers. One was a metal sculptor. The other one was an acoustician, and they had this vision of um, musical sculpture. I think was their term. Um, but it's played with. Uh, it's an all acoustic instrument. It's played with uh, wet fingers on glass rods and amplified with great big metal and plastic cones. And it kind of sounds like a synthesizer, I guess. It's, I think it's pretty distinctive, but it's, it's often mistaken for something electronic. Um, and sometimes I process it electronically, which I'm sure the Bachets wouldn't be too thrilled with. But, um, <laughs> but I've, uh, I've messed with the sound a little bit, too. I didn't yeah. really process it much in... Uh, in uh, in Artemis, but uh, yeah, it's a familiar sound in, in many of my scores. Right, right. And you used it in Drive. Uh, do you know, uh, can you give us an example of when you used it in Drive? Oh, yeah. It's uh, also the love theme in Drive, which I think is the first time that Ryan Gosling and Carrie Mulligan are talking in the kitchen. Oh, okay. But if you don't remember where that is, it also precedes the infamous uh, elevator skull crushing scene, yeah. uh, where Ryan Gosling's character kisses Gary Mulligan, and then he proceeds to like squash this guy's head in the elevator. So it's it's also in there in case you uh, yeah I'm sure you remember that scene. I, I yeah that's an iconic scene. Uh, one thing for for soundtrack geeks like me. Uh, it, it, one thing that I find interesting is that it's sort of a, a stark contrast to how to what that scene is. I mean, you, there is the part where they have their first sort of real romantic moment, and then 
there's the skull crush. It's 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 something you can't forget. It's it's a it's quite a powerful moment in in a powerful movie. Um, yeah, so, Nicholas loves those. Um, the director of loves those kind of moments of of high contrast. <laughs> Right. You right. only get about 30 seconds of, you know, of, of like sweetness and romance before it's um, before it's followed by a scene of extreme violence. <laughs> right. Uh, you've you've also been involved in uh, some other scores. I mean, you started out with uh, Sex, Lies and Videotape. And uh, over time, you've been you've scored just just tons of movies. Solaris. Uh, you've done the show The Nick. Uh, you're currently working on a show uh, with Nicholas Winding Refn, who directed Drive. Uh, it's called Too Old to Die Young. Um, so you have this this career that spans. And actually, you you got your start on TV, right? It was uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse. You had like one scene. Is that right? One episode. One episode. Uh, yeah. yeah, my very first uh, scoring job was a comedy, I guess you could say. Uh, yeah. One episode of Pee Wee's Playhouse. Right, right. And so you have this... You know, you had the, the, the career before this 30-year uh, compositional career. But, you know, if we're looking at your, your career in film, there's 30 years and there's a lot that can happen, especially considering that, you know, your primary tools are electronic uh, in various means of electronic other than the bache. And, you know, I'm curious over time, how has your approach to scoring changed or how has the tools you use changed? Uh, I guess there's been a lot of different things. Mostly, um, I've always embraced the technology of making music electronically with a computer. So there's been a lot of, uh, there's been, you know, a real renaissance, renaissance over and over of new tools, new, new toys, and they've all had an impact on me. Um, I'd like to think that experience makes you better <laughs> rather than make <laughs> more weighted and more complacent. I think it, it, um, you know, I think all composers and artists want to grow and evolve and develop. And I've always embraced the technology that kind of pushes you forward a lot. Um, other things that have happened, I remember with sex lies and videotape, I thought I was going to be sort of the ambient textural minimalist guy. And I kind of just jettisoned my whole um, background as a percussionist, as a drummer. Right. And then uh, I guess around 2010, I started using pitched percussion more and more. Um, used, uh, I mean, really, I couldn't play an instrument. I couldn't make music on an instrument if I couldn't hit it with a stick. So I finally realized after um, after a couple of decades that I needed to start hitting stuff with sticks again. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think a lot of the evolution comes from the relationships that you have uh, along the way, the directors that you work with, and that's those are always your main collaborators. So I've always been greatly influenced by them. Nicholas Reffin kind of got me to embrace synthesizers. And before, even though I was doing predominantly electronic music, I would kind of use sampling technology and try to do things that sounded acoustic. Okay. But Nicholas with Drive and actually Steven Soderbergh with Contagion both kind of pushed me to uh, get into synthesizers a lot more, which previously a lot of directors really 
didn't like that sound and um I didn't I wasn't really into it either to be honest. I much preferred kind of processing organic sound right. rather than starting with, you know, blatantly uh, synthetic sound. So that was a big change. So I guess percussion and synthesis those are probably a couple kind of key tweaks on my um you know, my my 30-year recipe for for making film scores right and then in the past since drive so in the past seven years already um it's been kind of a signature to have synthesizers uh, yeah i think not, not just by me but it seems like that's um it's you know synthesizers seem to be very in vogue now right. across the board right I right mean, it's always been there there's always been you know chariots of fire and and um Blade Runner and, you know, really landmark, distinctive electronic scores. But um, now it seems to have much even broader acceptance and popularity. Yeah, there's it's part of that sort of uh, the, the retro kind of approach to things. I think that Drive, quite frankly, I think your score and the pop songs on the Drive soundtrack helped usher this sort of nostalgia but, uh, you know, if you look now, there's Stranger Things um, is probably one of the bigger ones. But there are other there are a lot of other scores that have sort of a tangerine dream or or John Carpenter sound uh, to them. And it's it's it actually creates a pretty interesting uh, component of the film. I think it, it can sound really awesome. And I think you do a great job of it. I, I'm curious then over time as you've been working with these synthesizers are you finding yourself you know are you doing are you taking on more actual gear are you using more actual synthesizers heavy you know big keyboards or are you doing more of a, a like an in the box kind of thing i was uh during the period for drive and contagion i was very much in the box now i'm kind of following the popular trend of of actually using the hardware and um, mostly it's because it's just more fun. Um, a lot of people swear by the sound of anal real analog synthesizers being superior to uh, software versions of, of the synthesizers. Um, for me, it's all about trying to make the process more enjoyable and keep you excited and passionate and, and kind of being approaching writing music like a you know a kid at play right. so knob twisting is just so much more uh, exciting than mouse pushing so that's really my reason for um for embracing hardware synthesizers right and it seems like with hardware it's more tactile where you're you're if you're twisting a knob that's you physically sort of having control over the manip manipulation of the resonance of you know a particular patch or something like that whereas on the computer it just seems more disembodied you're not really it's like you're 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 kind of suggesting that it do something and you're not really you know there's not that visceral connection yeah yeah it feels uh yeah it feels like you're the the control is more immediate yeah and um i i'd like to think that it's perhaps more um personalized too i think when you're when you're twisting the knobs you're inventing a sound on the fly rather than um choosing a preset and just setting and forgetting it right exactly and and did you use a lot of, then i take it you've used uh, uh 
you know, synthesizers on Hotel Artemis. Yeah, it's a pretty electronic score. Yeah. Um, I mean, Drew really wanted, uh, he was specific in an interesting way. He said, let's have the lower frequencies, the basses and stuff, that should be electronic. The higher register elements, which also happen to be the theme elements, usually the melodic figures, right. um, make those orga uh, organic. So, um, yeah, the higher register things <laughs> be either real instruments or, you know, sampled uh, versions of acoustic instruments. And the low register stuff was all synthesizer. Oh, wow. And in your, uh, in your career, have you ever employed the use of, I'm trying to think, going through your discography, there's quite a few films here, but, you know, when what's an example of a score in which you sort of paired some of these electronic elements, whether synthesizer or sample, with something more traditional, like a, like a symphony orchestra, you know, something like that, or a quartet or something? Uh, yeah, I... I like that because, um, I mean, most recently, Game Night was one like that. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, the uh, directors, there were two directors on Game Night, which is unusual. Um, they had they had asked me to do some orchestral stuff towards the end of the film. They wanted that sense of scale, and perhaps they were seeking, a, you know, the commercial sound of an orchestra. Sure the traditional sound of it. And I've always thought that um, I'm sure I'm not the first guy to do a, quote, hybrid score, you know, mixture <laughs> of orchestra and synthesizer. It's, it's probably been done before. But whenever I hear uh, orchestra combined with synthesizers, it always sounded to me like because the orchestra is such a much more ambitious undertaking and it's so much more expensive the ratio of orchestra to synthesizers is usually about 70 to 30 or something. Oh, right. Um, where you hear the orchestra pounding away and you might hear an electronic drum loop or a little synthesizer arpeggio thrown in there. And I thought it would be interesting to kind of invert that uh, ratio. And whenever the orchestra was implied, to have it be dominated by the electronics and have the orchestra, and in this case it was a big orchestra, it was 80 pieces, kind of take a back seat. And um, I think it makes both the orchestral material and the synthesizer stuff um, more interesting because of that contrast of uh, artificial and organic. Right, right. It's an interesting tension there. Um, I was I was thinking to going, to going back on the, the Going back to the synthesizers, uh, you know, I think your early career, you, you came from a very sort of kind of experimental punk background in a way. You know, you were you were in Captain Beefheart. You were the drummer on, I believe, the last album. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then you played on Freaky Styly, is that right, of the Red Hat Chili Peppers album? Was it that one or were there a couple in there? There was two. Uh, Freaky Styly was their second album. Okay. And I played on the... The first album, which is just called Red Hot Chili Peppers. Right, right. Okay. And the second one was actually produced by George Clinton. Yeah. Yeah. So so uh, you have, uh, you sort of came up uh, making music that was, that was, you know, wasn't full on mainstream, wasn't, you know, something conventional. Um, and do you still feel like today, 
when I hear you talk about game night or even, you know, Hotel Artemis and your approach, I kind of get the impression that, you know, the you of 30 years, 40 years ago is still around. Do you still have yeah. that spirit? Does that seem like a fair assessment? Yeah, I think uh, my tastes in music have always been left of center. And I've tried to, to, to keep it that way. And that's actually one of the reasons that I migrated from uh, being a rock, from rock music as a drummer to a film composer. I just thought that film music allowed for a little bit more of kind of experimental and avant-garde music um, to be heard by a, a, a broad audience compared to, you know, radio at the time was, you could go from the left to the right side of the dial and hear maybe three or four styles of music, but mm -hmm. film is, has always been much more eclectic and um, at times much more experimental. So that's what completely um, got me interested in film scoring was the ability to be a little weird. And uh, yeah, I still think of Captain Beefheart as probably my most important uh, mentor in music. <laughs> he was, and he was very adventurous, very avant-garde. Yeah, his his music is phenomenal, and you know, I've, and he influenced Tom Waits, who himself is is fairly avant-garde, and uh, it's it's. I mean, that's a, an amazing sort of upbringing for you to have an amazing sort of introduction into to music uh, for you to be involved with something like that yeah he was one of my childhood music heroes and uh i actually got to uh record and work with him on his last album so it was a very um gary cooper high noon moment for me and and still an experience that influences me to this day yeah definitely uh one thing I was thinking about when, we, when we're looking at all these years and that sort of thing, uh, and we were talking a little bit about Drive before, and I think about, you know, I see Drive playing in the theater all the time. They'll have it, you know, in a special showing or a midnight showing. Uh, people still are tweeting and whatnot about the soundtrack. Sometimes there's people still discovering it. Sometimes there's people who just never, who've been listening to it for seven years. And not just the songs, but also your stuff as a package. They're, they're listening to the entire drive experience. They're watching the film. It's got this incredible, enduring quality. Uh, at the time when you were making it, did you have any idea this would be the case? Not the scale of the success of the, the film and the um, popularity of the soundtrack. I didn't see that coming. Um, I often get very excited about projects and I, I think it's it's biased by the fact that I'm involved. You just tend to like stuff that your ego is so invested in. Sure. But um, before I even had the job, really, of scoring the film, I was shown the film. And I just remember my first impression, the first time viewing, was that it was a unique, special film that I really liked. I didn't. It didn't seem like it was completely commercial because it was. It was. It wasn't an action film, which I, I thought a lot of people would think that that's what it was going to be, how, how they would market it. And I also didn't think that um, some of the violence kind of, I thought, was almost uncommercial. Right. It was so extreme that I thought that might have been a strike against it. 
So I didn't really foresee the the uh, success of the film and the longevity of the film um, at the time, and I still don't, you know, completely understand the longevity of the of of the movie and the score. But um, yeah, I if I knew what the recipe was, I would be, I would, uh, I'm I'm eager to repeat the experience. <laughs> well, uh, it's I think that. There's just a certain quality when you have a qu- all of the different qualities together. The sum of the qualities, I think, is what what really lends itself to it, the legend of it, I guess. But I also understand uh, that you only had about five weeks to work on the score, and that's not a lot of time, but that's a, an intense amount of time, like a trial by fire almost. It's like you were just dropped into this, and it's like here's this beautiful movie. Now write the score. It was you know. To what extent does that tension sort of challenge you to just do the best work? Um, I thought uh, it wasn't enough time. And, and there's plenty of composers that do things on even a shorter turnaround. Television guys, you know, can work like lightning. They can write a, you know, an hour-long score over the weekend. Right. I'm not one of those guys. Um, I've turned down projects that are... Five weeks is kind of the, the minimum. If it's less than that for a feature film, I'll just say uh, I'll pass. So it seems like that was the tightest schedule. Maybe I'd done something else in five weeks. I can't remember what it was. But I've always felt that my best work has been the longer um, time frames. Steven Soderbergh always would hire me before the film was even shot, he'd send me a script. We'd start talking about the film. Uh, then I get to see the dailies and it would be a much longer process. And what makes my scores for his films so good, in my opinion, is that he wants something kind of experimental, but to do that, you have to experiment and, and fail a few times. And that takes time. That eats, that takes time out of your, out of the deadline and makes it shorter. So I was uncomfortable with the five-week turnaround for Drive. Um, but in hindsight, in that particular case, it worked in my favor. You went with your kind of your first instincts, your first impulses. Um, there wasn't much room for experimentation. There wasn't any room for second guessing. So you just went with your impulse. And luckily, the first impulse seemed to work. Um, and a lot of people talk about, like in music, how the first take of a musical performance is superior to, you know, trying this thing over and over and over. Uh, for me, sometimes that's true. Sometimes not so much. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, if you listen to it, you know, I don't know how often you ever go back and listen to your scores, but... Not only does it hold up, but I can t- I can completely hear what you are talking about when you talk when you mention, you know, getting hitting it right on the head the first first go. It's just such a it's a it can be a visceral experience. It, it's it's not a bombastic score like Hotel Artemis in the sense that it's not you know big and pounding, but there's still you know the element of the sort of understated violence that the film is all about. If you consider how how Gosling's character Driver is sort of this supremely calm and seemingly nice guy, but when you cross him, your head's crushed in an elevator. 
Um, and I think the music does a great job of reflecting that. Yeah, it's the musical equivalent of crushing a head in an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> that that should be that should be the label on the 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 tenth anniversary uh, edition of the vinyl. <laughs> Uh, so we have uh, the Hotel Artemis score is out now. It's available uh, digital and CD, and uh, Invado Records will be releasing it on vinyl. Uh, Cliff, thanks so much for coming on the show, um, and I look forward to every piece of music that you put out for the rest of your career. Uh, thank oh, you. Oh, so thank much. you, and uh, please, uh, when you go back to your editing room, please. Uh, clean me up and make me um, articulate, uh, clever, and, and handsome.